2: Hello and welcome to another episode of I Way with Jamila Jamil. I hope you're well. I am good. I am, I am fine. I am mid moving house. So I just want to um, tear each one of the hairs on my head and in my eyebrows and some of my pubic hairs. That's right. I still have some of those. Um, I'd like to tear them each out individually just to somehow be able to externalise the internal pain of moving house and trying to fix anything. I'm having, um, I'm ageing fast um, and thankfully I really like ageing, so that's good. And I think I'm going to look really different and really haggard by the end of this. And thank God I have made a career of being okay with that because this is fucking terrible. This is not a way to live. Anyway, Um I thought I would give you an uplifting episode this week. It is an old episode that that was kind of from the early days of this podcast. And so a lot of you are new listeners. Thank you for joining this podcast. And it's such a funny and uplifting episode that I wanted to play it again because we talk about a lot of deeply personal things. This woman is so hilarious and so talented. Her name is Catherine Ryan. She's a Canadian stand-up who has become a huge sensation, in particular in the UK. She's got a bunch of Netflix specials and her own show on Netflix. And she's just a fucking genius and one of my absolute heroes we talk about so many things in this podcast we talk about patriarchy in such a funny way uh, she talks about uh, plastic surgery and and her own uh, approach to her aesthetic and the different things that she does the cosmetic enhancements that she has she talks about it so openly in a way that I just wish more public figures would do i yeah you know, I have no I think people think that I have a problem with cosmetic enhancement or cosmetic surgery I don't I wish none of us felt like we needed it. Of course I do, but I also totally don't judge anyone who does it. Look at the world we're living in. There's also a lot of people who are trans who whose lives depend on the safety that comes with cosmetic surgery. So I'm not against it. What I'm against is is people in particular cis people who are making money off of the way that they look because inherently becoming a celebrity especially if you're a woman has somehow is tied to your to the way that you look for many people. I get mad when they don't just tell the fucking truth about it so that we can all relax and not feel like we were born looking the wrong way. We weren't, we're not good enough. We, we, we have failed in some way. If we just found out that someone else cheated a little bit, then there's nothing wrong with them for having taken that route. And there's nothing wrong with us for not looking like them when they've cheated, when they have done an extra thing that we didn't know about. Just fucking tell us, don't tell us we work out. Fucking Kardashians on, on their special with Andy Cohen just like a week and a half ago. He was like, do you think that you have upheld unattainable beauty standards? And they were just like, no, I don't think we have. You know, we get up, we work, we do the work, we work out, you know, we're just really healthy. And I was like, oh, fuck off. You know, <laughs> come on, guys. It would have been so fucking amazing and revolutionary. I would have had so much respect for them if they'd just been like, yeah, I can totally see how we've contributed to those unattainable beauty standards. It's because we've been really badly bullied for not living up to those unattainable beauty standards that existed before we even became celebrities. And we fell victim to it because the world shamed us into doing so. Chloe changed the way that she looked because everyone told her to for 10 years you know, we are victims of unattainable beauty standards and therefore we have perpetuated it and we take responsibility for that. And we want people to know all the different things we've done so they don't think that we were just born looking this way and there's something wrong with them for not going to the gym and expecting their entire face and skin colour to change. I don't know. I've got a lot of feelings. I went on quite a tangent there. Sorry. Also sorry for my uh, bad American accent just then. Happens sometimes. Uh, but Catherine... Is on this podcast, just owning up to it, talking about what she loves about it, talking about the fact that she likes fillers, not because she is afraid of looking old, just because she loves this particular share, like smooth aesthetic. She's just so fucking cool. We talk about her being a mother and what an incredible mother she is. And I can say this because I've met her daughter who is truly the most impressive fucking child, I guess teenager now, uh, on earth. She's such a, such an intelligent, knowing and, and, and secure. Young person. And that is testament to the way that she's been raised. And we talk a lot about the way that, that Catherine has chosen to raise her daughter, kind of from learning from her own mistakes through her life and things she's been through and wanting to really never shield, like she protects her daughter, but she doesn't shield her from the truth. And I think that is so, so wonderful. There's this thing I often say on this podcast, which is that we, we misunderstand uh, when it comes to kids in particular. We think that ignorance and innocence are mutually exclusive. They're not you can find a peaceful and, and, and safe way of explaining something scary to a child that might protect them, that might actually really, truly preserve their innocence because they then aren't exposed to something that they don't understand or they don't know how to avoid or they don't know how to recover from. And so we go into that. And then most poignantly, and this, was, this is what we probably had the most feedback on when this podcast came around last year, is that she talks a lot about her miscarriage, which had happened not long before she came onto the podcast. And she spoke about it so honestly and openly and with no shame, as she should, because there's nothing to be ashamed of. It's not a failure. She uh, she educated me a lot about miscarriages and and was just so comforting and funny and warm about it. It's just the most... I've sent it to so many of my friends who have suffered miscarriages in the last year since. And I have re quoted her to everyone, and you will too after you listen to this episode. And the reason I wanted to play this episode again in particular is because she's just had another baby. The baby is here, the baby is safe. Catherine's recovered and well and fucking already back at work, I think, somehow. And, uh, And all has gone well. And so that is cause for celebration. And in honour of that, I am playing back this episode in order for you to to hear this difficult time that she went through and know that at the end of that tunnel is a bright, shining light of hope. and, and, And I love her. I don't know if you can tell from this intro but I really love her and she's someone that I'm friends with who I'm very grateful and honoured to be friends with and I'm very proud that she's on this podcast and I'm so excited for you to hear it even if you've heard it before fucking listen to it again because it's gold I've heard it three times even though I'm on it what a loser anyway this is the excellent Catherine Ryan Catherine Ryan, you are a writer, comedian, and actress. You were the first woman to host 8 Out of 10 Cats, does Countdown, and are still the only UK-based female comedian to have a global special on Netflix. You work more than anyone I know, and you make the world a funnier, better, and more honest place. I love you. You are my biggest crush. Thank you so much for coming on my podcast.
3: Uh, Thank you very much for having me. I'm going to dive right in and say, do you know what I hate that they do? What? Is they go, you're the only woman, you're the first woman, they hit you with Pedestal feminism. They I go, know. You're the first British woman. I'm like, whose fault
2: is that? I know, I know. Yeah. And I'm sorry, I contributed to that pedestal. It's not your fault, it's
3: in the bio. <laughs> it's in but, the bio. You're just reading what they told you to read. It's but bad. also
2: but also I think that it is important because it shows that it is possible. And some people might think Mm. it's never happened before. And also, they don't know that you are a UK-based comedian, so they might hear your accent and not know. So I still think it's relevant. And I think it's inspiring to young people who want to know that someone smashed through not just one, but like 45 glass ceilings. I'm amazed you're not covered in blood. Well,
3: from the waist (laughs) down, this is why video calls are fine.
2: Well, I'm really glad that you crossed all of the ponds to come over to the UK because for many, many years now, maybe we're going on seven or eight years, you have been a huge love of mine. I used to love you from afar and now I'm allowed to love you up close, not in as filthy a way as I'm making out, but we're still pretty far. Genuinely, you are one of my favourite just people. And so I'm happy that you exist. I have created this podcast about mental health and shame and feminism and all things that make us who we are, because, you know, especially I think now it's fair to say that this pandemic and everything being slowed down as much as it is has created space for some people's issues to surface. Mm. And we also don't have... Some people never have access to therapy uh, because so many countries in the West are absolutely fucked. Um, But some people in particular right now don't have access to any kind of support system. And so that's what this podcast is, just a way to let people know, hey, you're not alone. And the reason why I wanted so badly to speak to you is because you are the queen of You're Not Alone. You have made an entire brand of just telling people everything, the most personal stories and helping them recognise that these little kinks in life and these, I don't know, hurdles don't define you and they don't stop you from going on to have what you want and be who you are. And so I think that's, I have so many things I want to talk to you about because you've been so ridiculously open. In fact, I think I'm probably more open because of you. So it's your fault. (laughs) (laughs) It's fun,
3: isn't it? Because you alienate a lot of the family that you didn't want around anyway. Yeah.
2: Uh, Have you always been this open? Yeah. I
3: mean, yes. I just didn't get rewarded for it for a number of years. And I think when you talk about female comedians, or we could just call them comedians, and then yeah. like male comedians. I've, I've heard someone start There's calling the boys comedians male comedians. perverts. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Is that I think young women, for the most part, and I am generalizing, we don't get rewarded for being alpha when we're young, or mm. for being forthright, or for being funny. Um, and I definitely am from a small place, um, a town in Canada, where It wasn't valued. I thought that why would you want to do anything if you weren't having a laugh with someone? But then I have Irish family, so it's probably where that comes from. But I was definitely ostracized. I was definitely weird. And then I had a period of time you know, I would say things that offended people. I would be provocative and I didn't mean to. I had all these tools that I wanted to throw away. I just wanted to be a cheerleader. I wanted to be quiet and simple and pretty and soft. And I, no matter how hard I tried, it was never those things. And then all those tools that I spent so long trying to throw away are the tools I'm lucky stuck with me because they're the whole reason that I have a rapport with people now and a career and I have friends who are very like-minded now and who are layered and interesting had I stayed in that small town and been like okay and shrunk you know, yourself done yeah. the
2: pageant yeah when it turned out very happy what was that you said in one of your stand-ups this line that stuck with me forever where you were like when you were talking about how women have to stay small we must we mustn't take up any space in case a man wants to build a golf course there
3: yeah well this is what it is with <laughs> dieting And with being quiet and with being good is men take up all this space, generally speaking, and we're meant to get smaller and smaller. And that's not your space because a man might want to golf in it. You don't know. So you just have to stay out of the
2: way, be young and be small, be quiet. Anyone who hasn't seen Catherine stand up, or just anything she's ever done in front of a camera, uh, and also please, uh, please listen to her podcast. Uh, <laughs> uh, but she's a true joy. So I want to talk to you a bit about shame because that mm. is that's our biggest fetish on this uh, on this podcast. We love it. Yeah. We love talking about it. We love uh, figuring out people's journeys through and past it. What would you say in your life have been some of the biggest things you've had to negotiate with in terms of shame?
3: Um, I think a really big turning point for me and something that was a big struggle in my life. I read a lot of um, Indigenous psychology and Indigenous literature, and they believe in ancestral trauma. They believe in suffering. When suffering comes into your life, you have to invite it closer and ask it what it has to teach you rather than pushing it away. And I had a few years of suffering. I love them. They're my favorite years. I always go back to them and go, oh, I learned so much then. And Mm -hmm. now I feel like I have this clarity. I can always see exactly what people are saying, what men especially are trying to swing past people. I can always see it because when I became a single mother, I had a lot of shame about that. Even though outwardly, I guess, intellectually, I knew that being a single mother was aspirational. I always Mm -hmm. thought I regarded these women as being brave and strong. So noble. Um, Yeah. But when it happened to me, I felt that maybe an ancestral shame of, well, you should have worked harder to keep your family together and you couldn't manage that man. And you, you know, you are the failure. And still, when people find out that I'm not with my daughter's father, the assumption is always that he left me. Oh, he left you. And it's like, he left because I asked him to. Like, I ended that relationship. And I didn't end it in the most graceful way. started (laughs) seeing someone else right away. In some cultures, it's called overlapping. And um, I felt a great (laughs) deal of... um, Shame about that. And I, because I was so shameful, this is why shame to me is very dangerous. Wait, shameful about being a single mother or shameful about all the overlapping? The, the, all of it. The sword was, crossing,
2: as they call it. The sword sometimes. crossing,
3: all yeah. of it. I would just felt like a failure and a bad person and a bad mother. And yeah. I everyone in my family expected a lot from me growing up. And the fact that I had no money and I was in a foreign country with a small baby and my life was really then quite hectic. There was a lot of yeah. chaos. I just felt so much shame. And now I didn't realize at the time, being shame, having that much shame, you have to get rid of it as quick as you can because it puts you in a really vulnerable place. Because mm-hmm. I felt like nothing, then I attracted choices and people who were nothing, and then I was in a few relationships that I would maybe describe as like, what are the words for you? toxic, bordering on dangerous. And, um, I don't blame those people. I mean, I definitely sought them out. I sought out people who did not deserve us. And then I would double down in those relationships and be like, well, you can't be a failure twice, Catherine. You really must hold on to this one. You can make him. And I just was in a tailspin for a few years, all because of shame.
2: Yeah. And I, I have this with so many of my friends who are single mothers that they end up dating someone just to fill that man-shaped hole in the family portrait. You know what I mean? They're just like, yeah. I just need someone so that it doesn't look like I'm alone and therefore make choices that are just not always appropriate for them. And yeah. these partners of theirs, regardless of their gender, are able to get away with just total murder because, not literally, but... um Because they, they well, yeah, (laughs) but uh, because they know that someone, they can sense your, and I don't mean this word in a shaming way, but they can sense your desperation to not be Mm -hmm. alone because we have made loneliness such a stigma and single motherdom such a stigma.
3: Yeah. And then the more that people who love you acknowledge bad behavior, they say, well, that shouldn't be happening and that shouldn't happening. And why are you tolerating that? I would dig my heels into that relationship even harder and say, well, none of it will matter if I can just prove that I was able to make this a success. And every time something bad would happen, it would strengthen my resolve to be like, well, you don't want to introduce your daughter to a whole new man. I would always think better the devil you know. You don't want to find a whole new one and start training him up from fresh." And um, yeah, I tolerated a lot of behavior that was absolutely beneath my usual standard. And it took so many lessons. Now I know things like you never argue with an idiot. Otherwise, people won't know which one of you is the idiot. <laughs> I also <laughs> I also learned um, people don't have to understand you. You just walk away. You don't have to give an explanation. I would always say oh, well, he he doesn't understand that what he's doing is bad behavior. He doesn't understand how much he's hurt me. I'll just explain how I'm not the psycho and I'll just explain. It's like, no, don't explain anything to them. Who cares? Let him go live his life thinking you're a psycho. That's fine. Just walk away. And um I haven't, I was really proud of getting out of a few tricky things. Mm-hmm. And that's why I did my latest Netflix special was really celebrating the the comfort and the peacefulness in being alone, taking away the fear of that prospect, because I could have used a voice like that when I was a single mother. It was great being single. It's great. You have nothing to be
2: shameful about. There was so much more space for you and your life and your existence yeah. where you're not having to sort of cramp yourself, not just physically, but also cramp who you are. I also think that when, um, you know, i I come from. Uh, I mean, I don't know why we call it a broken home. Like that's again, that's a shaming narrative. Yeah. Like it just make it just sounds like failure and despair. Whereas actually, I've always been an advocate for if it's not working, definitely break up so that your child doesn't grow up seeing a really toxic, unhappy relationship yeah. and thinking that that's what they should have. Because that in itself can also model someone's way of going forward in love. I think is seeing that people just just eating shit and being with someone who doesn't make them incredibly happy. I don't think that's good for a yeah. kid. I would i would rather that they were in two separate peaceful households that belong to happier people. But um, my parents uh, broke up when I was very young and I think that... It impacts people differently. For For me, it definitely gave me a feeling for a long time of, I have to now make a little unit because I didn't have a family. So mm. now I am obsessed with the idea of making a little unit and having my own little chosen family. And so that would make me, I just jumped from relationship to relationship to relationship throughout my 20s mm. because I didn't know how to be alone because I was so scared of ending up like my parents. And uh. so I think that's interesting. And also sometimes as adults, we try to, we try to, shape our lives in a way that will make us feel like we fix what happened in the past. So it's like, if I can make this relationship work now, or if I can make this person who's unhappy, happy, then that'll fix the parent that I couldn't make happy or the marriage that yeah. I couldn't help, you know, bring together. So I think it is definitely really interesting. Um, I love that you've been so open throughout your dating life as well with your various horror stories. Uh, they have been incredibly yeah. funny and joyous to listen. Do you have a top, do you have a like a best hit? I mean of your favorite one.
3: I have to say, I've only ever dated Korean businessmen. All my (laughs) ex-boyfriends have been Korean businessmen. So if anyone recognizes themselves in any story, it wasn't you unless you were a Korean businessman. Okay, great. (laughs) Um I mean, there's the asshole story. I was, um, he was not an asshole, but I was on a date and this man, like at a beautiful restaurant leaned in and said to me, you know, I have to tell you, you have one of the top four assholes that I've ever seen. (laughs) And I was like, because he didn't say it was number one. He said one of the top four. So I know it's number four. It's like, that's an honorable mention. That was painful. Um, That's when I stopped (laughs) dating actors and musicians
2: and went straight to Korean businessmen. I love the I love the top four asshole story so much. Um yeah. I've, I've been told by and I don't even know if this is an insult or not, but this isn't about my asshole. Don't worry. Um oh. but, uh, it's no good to is, know. No one's yeah, insulting your no asshole. No one actually has an opinion on mine, to be honest. Uh,
3: but- yes, they do. This is what you don't realize. This is why I had to tell the world that information is that I never knew they were looking at our assholes, but they are, and they're remembering them, and they're making a little Yelp review. They're looking for, I'm not looking for their asshole. You, you don't think anyone's seen your asshole because you don't try to look at someone's asshole. Trust me when I tell you they're seeking out your asshole. This, is not, this is
2: not what I brought you here for, to freak out all the listeners about their assholes. There's nothing yeah. they can do. They can't even, they can't wax, they can't bleach, no one's allowed to leave their house. What did Russell Brand call his? His dark, leathery bagel. Truly the most upsetting term of all time. Anyway, away Spirit, from, away from, yeah <laughs> so i've been told by three separate lovers um in a loving way that it's like making love to a memory foam mattress <laughs> just cuz i mean because i have no muscles and it almost feels like i have no bones i'm just sort of i'm a i'm a long slim squish i'm you know the the car sales inflatable people but i am i feel like a pillow. I'm just a. Did you ever eat a flump? It's a long marshmallow. Yeah. and the, I'm a flump. It's just a one That's long nice. marshmallow. So yeah, I'm. They like that. You're like a boob. Yeah, I'm just one very long boob, and so don't know why I brought What's that. What's really just dis- yeah. <laughs> <you> but <know.
3: laughs> what you need to know is that that lover has a frame of reference and has fucked a memory foam mattress.
2: In the past <laughs> he was like this th- exactly like that time <laughs> that means three of my five lovers have all bung bung being the past tense of bang oh uh, they've all bung <laughs> memory foam mattress All one long boob Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com forward slash today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp.com slash Iway.
0: Summer, the best time of year, usually doesn't come with a great deal. Soaring temperatures come with soaring prices. But what if there's another way? With IKEA, your summer plans can last longer than two weeks of vacation and be more affordable. Here, everyone can have lounge chair access, no reservations needed. From affordable outdoor furniture to stylish accessories, we have all the essentials you need to soak up summer in style, no matter the size of your space. Start planning a better summer with IKEA. It's your outdoor dreams inside your budget.
1: Start clean with Clorox, because Clorox delivers a powerful clean every time. Because messes happen. Because...
2: Okay. I'm pivoting back to you and away from my uh, bodily makeup. This year you started your own podcast from your house. You're not really, you don't really have guests other than sort of um, conversations <laughs> with your family members that you asked for their permission after you've spoken to them to air them. Yeah. Uh, you t- kicked off this new podcast talking about something incredibly traumatic that happened to you this year, which was a miscarriage. And while it feels very recent, I mean, it is literally very recent, I I would love to talk to you about it because I feel like the way that you opened up uh, has helped so many people, not just people I know, but I've just seen the internet, just the wave of support for you, but also thanking you because nobody talks about miscarriages publicly.
3: Yeah, Because it's another thing well, about shame. It's as if we failed. It is. It, I think that people attach it to this, deep failure. And my advice would be don't help people because when you do the, they write you emails about it every day. So I've opened up this Pandora's box of grief. And every day now that I open my email, there are 50 stories about women who've had pregnancy losses. And, um, it's quite emotionally Taxing. You're like, whoa, yeah. I just know every time I open my computer, it's like grief, grief, grief. Um, however, and then a dick and then grief and then
2: grief and then grief and then another yeah, dick. And yeah. then there's
3: a little palate cleanser yeah. of uh, someone's <laughs> balls. Yeah. Um, <laughs> men and women. I don't want to generalize. No. Um, but yeah, so it was traumatic at the time. And now I feel a lot better. So if that's any consolation, um, it can be something that if you deal with it properly, it is a distant memory, hopefully. And I think the mind is very interesting in how it heals you. It's sort of the same as you forget childbirth that you almost forget, you know, I'm sure you forgot your car accident. People say they get mm-hmm. in accidents and they forget. So it's it's a lot the same. Um I think what was most traumatic about the miscarriage is I always knew about miscarriage. I found myself, I always thought I was very well-versed in women's issues, but I didn't realize that once you saw a heartbeat on the scan at seven weeks, that you could go back at 10 weeks and without any pain or any bleeding, you still have all your symptoms. You're still nauseous. Every first trimester symptom is still there. There's just no heartbeat and you are a tomb for this deceased embryo the last few weeks. It's, it was just the weirdest feeling. It really blindsided me. I always thought you would bleed. So I, w- I didn't really know about a silent miscarriage. So then I went to work. Um, and then, then I dealt with that and it's kind of weird being a clown. Cause all of a sudden now I know that, <sighs> I mean, I'm, using triggering language, but it is really just being pregnant with a dead baby. I was like, well, now I'm pregnant with a dead baby. I have to go to work, tell jokes to all these people, meet them, chat to them after, be smiley. Um, And that's what all the Botox is for, just being like, (laughs) it's fine. And then they give you medicine and you think it's going to come out, but it still lasted for a month. So I always had to go to work. I had it for a month before eventually they were like, okay, you can have surgery it just doesn't want to come out. And that's where the real trauma for my experience came from, is that it was holding on. And I thought, oh, I just felt really like a bad mother, really trying to evict this I didn't know Felix. that that
2: they wait. They I didn't know they make you wait. Both I, I've had two miscarriages before, and they were just oh, as, they were as they were as dramatic as the movies tell you they are, and it was like very very clear what happened immediately. I'm okay, and uh, to the point where I actually have a different kind of guilt. I feel guilty for being okay about my miscarriages. Oh, And so that's uh, a different way in which sometimes people uh, accidentally make you feel bad or intentionally where you are expected to be very traumatised for a very long time. And in the few films I've seen about it, they're very traumatised for a very long time. And so I felt like a dead cold bitch uh, for just being able to move on and be like, okay, well, just it wasn't the right time and my body wasn't ready and my body let me know that this isn't the right time for me and now I'm moving on it impacted me for a short while. And, and however your brain chooses, to that's clearly just what my brain did. My brain compacted it into like, you know, put it into some sort of pragmatic compartment and I was able to get on. It doesn't make me a bad person. It doesn't make you a bad person if you're out there and you feel the same way. But anyway, sorry, back to you.
3: Not at all. No, whatever your reaction is, whatever your brain decides to do to process it is perfect. And your pragmatic reaction Really is the right one. That's what the midwives say. They go, Well, this, um," the midwife said to me that it was a sign of strength because women um, and anyone who has children, they invest so much time in gestation and then raising a small child. It's a huge investment. So it's a sign of strength if your body knows, Nope, you know, this one's too poorly, you know, it won't be compatible with life. Your body preserves your time, you know, it goes, no, you don't have time for this and moves you forward. And as like shrewd as that may sound, that's nature. And the midwives are very pragmatic about it. And I think your reaction is great. And to be honest, that's how I feel about it now. But at the time I was shameful. I sort of felt like, I let my husband down. I have a husband now. Um, mm. and <laughs> my current husband. Yeah. <laughs> I let him down. and um, uh, and I also felt shameful just for having wanted that pregnancy so much. I just felt like there was egg on my face, you know, that expression where I was like, Oh, well, I knew that. I knew I just felt silly for not realizing. That's so interesting. Why?
2: Why do you think that is?
3: Well, it's definitely the wrong feeling because it's ridiculous, but you just go that I can only be very transparent about exactly how I felt. And I felt really stupid for not realizing and for walking around all excited. And I felt really foolish. Um, and I felt really shameful. And then it was my way of dealing with things is to talk about them. And I felt also this collective grief because you know that it doesn't just happen to you. I understand what the statistics are even more so now, but I know it happens. And all I could think was this happens to so many people and they're just walking around like they are serving you your coffee, and they are nurses in the hospital as well. And they go to their jobs and they're living in the world around you. And what they all want to do is grab you and say, I'm pregnant with a dead baby. And so... I felt that
2: collective grief and I just felt so sad for everyone. Yeah. I can't imagine having to walk around for a month waiting for that. That was, that is something that I didn't know anyone had to do. I know that that can happen sometimes with an abortion where you have to hang on to a baby that you would like to have aborted. Uh, That happened to me as well. Um, When I, and and you know, you're pregnant, you know, you don't want to be pregnant anymore. when they make you stay pregnant for long enough that they can see the embryo. And so you have to go through all the symptoms and it can be sometimes like a month, I think it was like a month and a half, right? To stay pregnant. And that was very traumatizing and felt a little bit like, are they, do they set this time frame so that you have time to, you know, quote unquote bond and then you won't want to do it. I didn't know. Maybe. I'm sure there's yeah. a practical medical thing, but you know, there's, it's definitely something that can be quite stressful. So did you feel better after having that operation? Was that like a part of your ability to heal? Immediately
3: better. I had a car from the hospital to work (laughs) and I went to work. Oh my God, Catherine. Yeah. And I continued to bleed for 40 days after that. It was like lent. Um, (laughs) But (laughs) I felt just like immediately (gasps) relieved. Like I could start the next chapter because you just feel so arrested when it's happening. And my behavior was erratic. I mean, Mm -hmm. I was hosting the NME Awards and... I was just acting like, uh, I just acted like a rock star for about a month, I think.
2: I, th- I think that's just completely like, fair.
3: Yeah.
2: Well, I think that's your, way of, that's your way of like acting out and distracting yourself and like, re-engaging with your autonomy because I think you feel a little bit powerless when, that, when something happens to your body. When your body does anything that you did not tell your body to do. Yeah. I think it can really make you feel a little bit powerless. And so it's you just wanting to take all of the control back. That makes perfect sense. Uh and I thought you were great at the enemy awards <laughs> from all the things I've heard and seen. Um and also I think that you know, it's also really important for you to understand—not you specifically. I know that you understand this, but anyone out there, you know, especially someone who might what? be very young and might not have access to this information, that your hormones are just having their own bloody like mm. Mardi Gras. It's just Coachella up in there. <laughs> it's chaos. It and, was Coachella. Yeah, it was Coachella <laughs> indeed. Um, and so I'm really glad that you've been able to work through that. Did you use therapy? Did you did you take steps too, uh, or you just came to your own kind of conclusion of closure?
3: I have this wonderful therapist called Pam Goler Wright, and she works with a company called Bee Leaf. And she's always like, you've got to stop mentioning me because I'm full. And then people ring Pam. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> what Pam should do is just write a bunch of books and we will buy those because she changed my life in so many ways back when I was really vulnerable. Um, But I spoke to her about this and I miss her. I was almost a little bit like, oh, great. I have something to ring Pam about. Mm. And she was really helpful. She it's just sometimes people you spoke earlier about access to therapy. Some people are just resistant to therapy and they say, no, I can do everything. It really can be if you have that access so useful to hear what you already know repeated by a third party. Um, just having Pam repeat the pragmatic sides of it to me and and really listen to my grief. It's really great because you do need space just to be sad. And then I also spoke to a psychic and oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Do you know Lou Sanders, the comedian? Yes, She's, I do. Yeah. She recommends to everyone, her psychic Jill in the Pyrenees and, um, Jill does voice calls and she, um, she is a energy cleaner more than a psychic. But she told me that um, gratitude is always really important, even when something terrible is happening to you. So you need to be in a place of gratitude, write that little soul, a letter, thanking it for its service, thanking it for whatever role it's had. Jill said that it a soul like that comes with a purpose and that purpose might only be six weeks or 10 weeks or whatever it is. And then you go out into the forest and you burn the letter because the spirit world understand fire and
2: make of that what you will. But mm. I felt that it was very healing. Great. I've, I, su- I support anything that does that. And also, you know, because of little person or being uh you have yeah. gone on to help thousands of people feel better and less alone in their experience and so there wow. will always be that we named him um froth like frisbee golf
3: froth <laughs> because you can't say froth and not smile okay <laughs>
2: That's so good how are we oh. going <laughs> I love that name. And we're going to a A frog.
0: Summer, the best time of year, usually doesn't come with a great deal. Soaring temperatures come with soaring prices. But what if there's another way? With IKEA, your summer plans can last longer than two weeks of vacation and be more affordable. Here, everyone can have lounge chair access. No reservations needed. From affordable outdoor furniture to stylish accessories, we have all the essentials you need to soak up summer in style, no matter the size of your space. Start planning a better summer with IKEA. It's your outdoor dreams inside your budget.
1: Start clean with Clorox because Clorox delivers a powerful clean...
2: We're back. So, Catherine, you already have a child. She's now, how old is she now? 13? She, 11? Well, yeah, in a way. She just turned 11. Right. Okay. So emotionally 13. Although, you know what? Mm-hmm. So I think I first met your daughter when she was about seven or eight, and she's always been 40. Just like legit yeah. 40. <laughs> I, I've always felt not only like I was talking to someone my own age, but someone much older, smarter and wiser than me. And I am not kissing your ass. I am freaked out by your child to the point where I tell pe- everyone I know about her. I don't even talk about you. Yeah. I don't even mention you. I just talk no. about her because <laughs> I'm so impressed. How, she, how did you she do She is this? like a little old
3: lady. She yeah. went out into your balcony and then left her sunglasses there and just bounced, you know very glamorous oh
2: no but she just like gives really thoughtful advice very very forthcoming with her opinion very bright and she just has this sense of empowerment that I did not recognize in myself even as an adult never mind as a very Uh. small single digit child where does that come from how did you do this how can we all have a child like your child Please. Well, I think I'm a very good mother
3: to very small children, and then I'm not sure if I'm a good mother to the age that she is now, so she might have regressed since I last saw you. Only because, <laughs> only because I'm competing now right. with all these other girls and all these games and all these apps. She remains kind and wise, though. I'm quite manipulative, um, and yeah, and she always. I mean, I think that communication was really important because when she was small, I didn't have any anyone else here in the UK, and I really wanted to talk to her, and I couldn't wait until she could speak back to me. And she was quite a fussy, like newborn, a really fussy infant. So I was just bored. So I potty trained her really young because I could tell by the look on her face. This doesn't work, by the way, if you are employed. But I was at home. I could tell Mm. by the look on her face when she needed to go to the potty. So I just hold her over the potty. And then I figured out that babies, even before they can speak back, they can sign back. Mm -hmm. So I would do British sign language with her. And then she could sign for things. By the time she was seven, eight months, she could sign things that were meaningful to her. So loads of different animals: mouse, dog, cat, horse, hot, cold, help, inside, outside, cookie, cheese, apple, those kind of things. It's basically, then, just my
2: my vocabulary now. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Those are my needs gone. Exactly. So I had a little friend, and then I always thought
3: I think I was just really. um I didn't have Western information to raise her. I didn't go to any NCT meetings. I didn't do the normal Western things of swaddling her and putting her away from me. I always carried her. I always co-slept. The potty training thing is called elimination communication. They do that all over most of the world.
2: And in LA, (laughs) you'll
3: see it in LA. What the fuck um, is
2: elimination communication?
3: It's like other countries don't train their kids to go in a nappy. And what we have to understand, what a lot of us do in the Western world, is we say, oh, I'm not going to potty train. It's too soon to train them. But by putting a nappy on, you are training them. You're training them to go in their nappy. They think, yeah. well, this is what we do. Yeah. And then when they're 18 months, they have this sense of self, you change it. And that's when kids are like, no, we're not changing it. I go behind the couch in my nappy. That's my routine. Yeah. Um, It just means communicating elimination. <laughs> <Roughly>. <laughs> and people... Yeah, people do it through sign language and people do it just by reading different cues on their baby's faces. And it really worked for me. And then because she was never vulnerable, she didn't have some stranger changing her nappy. And she didn't have that period of frustration where she couldn't tell me what she wanted. She could always tell me what she wanted. Um, Then I think she just grew up really calm and communication was highly valued. And even when I had these like crazy boyfriends, they never lived with us. So we grew up in a really quiet, symbiotic, democratic household.
1: Yeah, very which, democratic.
2: Uh, yeah. Yeah. But she doesn't, she'd never come across as spoil. What she comes across as is just someone who really understands the lay of the land. And I think that whenever I think about becoming a mother, I, I genuinely think about you. And I think about the way that you've raised your child. And I think about the fact that we are raising children in a time where innocence as an innocence. I don't think we should tie ignorance to innocence and say that if someone doesn't know about the evils of the world or how things work, then therefore they're innocent. I think someone can be knowing and innocent at the same time. And I think that your Mm. daughter embodies that. I just think that we can't protect them from the internet. We can't protect them from TikTok. We can't protect them from body image issues and this, that, and the other and boys and everything. So we have to, or whoever. Um, So therefore the only way we can really protect them and truly preserve their innocence, I think, is to inform them is to empower them with knowledge because Mm. then their actual innocence is less likely to be taken away by someone or something that is bad that is going to corrupt them. And so I think that it's really important. You know, school doesn't tell girls, fuck all. And our parents don't really tell us. They don't warn us what's coming. And so, you know, have you been like, how forthright have you been with your daughter about every, I mean, what's coming
3: in the world? I mean, she... I don't censor myself. And one thing that was really interesting. Did people used to judge you for that, by the way? Yeah, they still do all the time. Really? All the time. (laughs) Yeah. Even stories that I tell in my stand-up, they'll be like, well, you shouldn't be telling her about that and she shouldn't know this. Um, And also, even because I do stand-up, I've done interviews where men have said, well, you have a very dirty mouth. How are you going to explain to your daughter one day about what you do. And I'm like, well, I think my daughter doesn't have this Madonna and the whore complex where she views me as only a mother and a baby machine and an angel. My daughter knows that I'm a person. Um, She knows everything. They never say that to
2: men. I've never seen that
3: said to a man. I know. I'm like, how does Mickey Flanagan answer that question? Yeah. (laughs) Tell me what Kevin Hart's answer was and that's my answer um the only thing I don't tell her which is weird um I don't admit to having had sex before <laughs>
2: <laughs> because I can't lose her respect right okay and so she's wise and all the way it's just a little bit of a slut shamer maybe uh <laughs> she is a slut shamer
3: she knows people have sex um and she just, she doesn't like it. I think I just know what she can handle and what she can. Yeah. She knows all about George Floyd. She knows everything that's going on in politics. She knows a lot of the mistakes I've made. She knows, she knows everything, but um, she thinks she, I'm a virgin. <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> oh
2: God. Yeah. Oh, that's bloody. genuinely, that's bloody hilarious. That's so no. funny to me. Um, well, yeah, okay. Well, tell your children the truth, whatever age they are. Just start it young, because I think that it will protect them. And Catherine really does have a really great daughter, who I'm terrified. Tell of. them I that you here. had IVF. <laughs> yeah, tell them about the stork. Yeah, she's she's smart in every way, other than the fact that she thinks a stork delivered her. <laughs> that is her <laughs> only blind spot. Um, you have recently got married to. Your, drumroll, childhood sweetheart. Yeah, he's so cute. And she actually gets along with him. And I would love for you to just briefly explain to people that you didn't meet him at high school. And then the two of you stayed together all of this time, like the American dream. Yeah. You met each other. You broke up. (laughs) And then you went on to date a series of uh, learning moments, teachable moments. That's what we're going to refer to those men as, those people as. And uh, yeah. and now you have met your, how did you reconnect with him? Well, it's so strange
3: because I was at the first part, point in my life. I had dated a really nice man, but he wasn't right for me. So I had really graduated in my journey of, of men. Yeah. And I thought, okay, I did it. I know that I'm not the problem. I dated someone who's very smart, very nice, very normal. We're still friends now, but I don't want that around. And then I resolved just to live as a fabulous, you know, single older woman. I was going to really cherish getting older. I was going to get one of those crazy shopping carts and many, many more dogs. Just start dressing more. Um, extravagantly yeah. and have a really clean house, everything rose gold, loved that path for myself. And I was truly in a great place where for the first time I was satisfied. I wasn't looking and I thought, great. And I had purchased um, sperm online because I thought I might still want to grow my family. So I had all these, you know, You were fully plans. set up. Yeah. I was fully set up. And then I went home to Canada to film something for the BBC And I, um, was aware of him because we dated in high school and I really loved him in high school. I loved him a lot. And we split, um, for a variety of reasons. Namely, we were 16 and I don't think you should stay with the same person necessarily when you're 16. I never would have the life or the journey or the experiences that I have now had I stayed with him. Um, and then I saw him in a bar and I was like, and he looked better than ever. And I'm, so pleased to confirm that I'm far more attracted to 37-year-old men than I am to 16-year-old men.
2: Fantastic!
3: Yeah. It was a really great <laughs> feeling just to see him and go, oh my gosh, you're so much better looking now as a yeah. gray adult. Um, and then I thought it would be funny uh, to go home with him and have sex with him at my mom's house because when am I going to get that opportunity again? I thought it'd be hilarious. And yeah. uh, he was into it. He thought it would be hilarious as well. And then we could both have a fun anecdote for our friends and that would be it. Yeah.
2: Um,
3: but, oh, there's
2: a siren. Can you hear it? Probably. Yeah. Catherine's under arrest because her daughter's just found out she's not a virgin. <laughs> i just wait, wait till that you. goes. She would.
3: Um, And then we just got chatting loads. He was so sweet. And I couldn't believe that was the only one night stand I'd ever had in my life. I was, bring it back to shame. I was like, Oh my gosh, what have I done? But then he was such a gentleman. He didn't play any of these games. He texted me the next day. And then he came straight to England the following week. And then we just started dating and it was the easiest, most straightforward thing in the world. There was just no reason not to. And then we got married, I think six months after that. Um, when did we get married? So that was January and we got married in September. You're almost. You're going nine months. months, Yeah, yeah. So it was just very, and that's what I wish I had known when I was younger. Is they they say that the right relationship is easy. I didn't realize it was that easy. There are no signs of resistance in the right relationship. It's not. Oh well, I'd have to quit my job and I have to do this. And oh well, I'm. You know, there's a flood in my basement and I got. For the right relationship, there are no excuses and you just make it work. Mm. We were fortunate that he didn't have children or, you know, a current wife or anything at home. And it was easy. I'm in a position where we could be together, but it was just so
2: easy. It's still so easy. We don't fall out. He's just like perfect for me. And the reason we're never told about that is because it wouldn't make very good songs or films. Like two know. people having a really nice time in sweatsuits. You know what I mean? Like no one wants to see yeah. no one wants to see that film. We want to see people running in the rain. We want drama. Sometimes we want some blood. Um And so I think that in the name of art, we've destroyed everyone's perception of what love is like. There was that film, what was it? He's not, he's just not that into you, which gave me such a mind blowing moment at the beginning of the film where from the minute in particular, little girls uh, first receive some sort of bullying behavior from a little boy. We are always conditioned to think that that means we're always explicitly told that means he likes you.
3: Mm-hmm. And that,
2: for some reason, that silly film just was like a fucking explosion in my brain where I was like, that's what I've always been to- I've been programmed from as soon as I could understand that if someone treats you like shit, it means that they like you. It means that they care. Yeah. And yeah. how that programming went into me. And so I think it's wonderful that you found just peace and, and, uh, and joy and love. I think that's great.
3: That's exactly what it is. It's peace. And I feel that I've abandoned... The single mothers that I was speaking to in my Netflix special, Glitter Room, but everything I said still stands. If you choose to have someone in your life because it's that easy, then you definitely should. I was just objecting to the hundreds of years when we needed men legally to survive, when we weren't allowed to have a bank account or carry a passport or have a mortgage without them. Mm and even those little nursery rhymes and things we would learn in kindergarten about them kicking your books out of your hand i mean all of that has been ingrained in us for so long that we don't even realize how baked into
2: us it, it is yeah. it's so crazy it's so wild well i'm yeah i agree motherhood is hard enough never mind with like having to look after two people in the, one of whom is an adult baby and so i agree i think only do it if you if it just if it enhances your life Right. Yeah, I think generally, whether you're a mother or not, I think that's the only time you should get into a relationship. I, I definitely would not be in a relationship now. I, before I met James, had said I don't want to date any more people ever again. Yeah. That's it. I'm 28. I'm hanging up my hanging up my heels. <laughs> <laughs> I'm out the game, uh, and it was only because it was a relationship that genuinely added to my life in so many ways that I was like, okay, you may stay. And I well, that's what we should percent. all do. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. It's like.
3: They tell you not to go food shopping when you're hungry. Yeah. Well, you shouldn't go man shopping when you're thirsty.
2: I agree. That's so good. (laughs) Um, Okay. I want to talk to you uh, while I still have you about surgery. Because okay. there's all this, there's all this, because you're so incredibly open about just cosmetic procedures and your own, uh, your own decisions to make aesthetic differences to yourself.
0: And mm-hmm. what
2: I, and I think a lot of people think that I'm anti all surgery and anti all cosmetic procedures, whereas I'm definitely not. I had my tits reduced and it was one of the best decisions I've ever made. And mm-hmm. um, and I, I love them. Uh, so I'm, pr- I'm pro whatever the fuck gets you through the day and makes you feel better. The only thing I'm yeah. anti is people, A, feeling like they're not worth anything. Without those things. And not, I don't judge those people, I judge the system that made them feel that way. Mm-hmm. I think it should be a decision you make to, you know, just make yeah, enhance, like lipstick. <laughs> you know, it's something that should make you feel better, not something that you think that you are a worthless human being without. But also when it comes to famous people in particular, I think it's really important that they are transparent about it. If you own up to it and you're not setting this unrealistic beauty standard for people that then makes them feel bad about themselves. I don't care. Chrissy Teigen talks about it all the time. She's talked about all the procedures she said I've done. And I love your transparency with yours. And I feel like some people would probably think that I wouldn't be pro that. Whereas I think, and or that that isn't, some people have the misguided notion that then you are, if you, if you were to do any of those things, then you are not feminist. And I think that you very much so prove that you are all of the things. You're just a human. You're layered.
3: Yeah. I'm definitely flawed and layered and definitely a product of my environment and society and I absolutely know that there have been jobs where I I get them partly because of how I present myself um and I definitely have had in my contract before that I always have to have my hair down because I look less severe <laughs> That's never been in any of Joe Rogan's contracts. Um, I can only guess. And um, I just think I had a breast augmentation when I was very young, like 21 or 22, which I probably regret now, though I'm really happy that I researched it and I went to this genius doctor who did such a good job. Like I still have the same ones now. And it could not have gone better. But the reason I am so transparent about that is because not all augmentations look like, uh, you know, the Playboy magazines, there are some women walking around to a very, you know, quote unquote, normal average bodies who've had things done to them. Um, And I think it's good to see the whole spectrum of that. And then my face, I've not had surgery like knives on my face, but I definitely do like peels and acids and facials and I get Botox and fillers. And I've been to the right places for that kind of stuff. And I've been to the wrong places for that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. And I hate it when, as you say, a celebrity changes something or looks a certain way. And I don't, understand why. I don't know why. So I don't look like, I'm trying to give an example. You know, the family I want to say, but I don't want your name tied to them <laughs> again.
2: And then <laughs> it'd be like, they're slamming them. Well, yeah. um, you know, I have to always slam, hit and crush. Yeah. I yes. can never just speak reasonably about women.
3: Go on. Well, I don't look like a model. And I think it's really important too, for people to understand that having these procedures is never gonna be a magic wand. You're not gonna have these procedures and look like Giselle Bundchen the next day. It's just going to
2: I mean she also has surgery, but yeah, go on.
3: I know. Yeah. Um she's also um it just tweaks either in a good way or a bad way yeah. what you already have. And my lips will always be wonky because I had silicone put in them once for in like an amateur's basement for cash in Canada when I was twenty-three or twenty-two. And um, that never goes away. So I talk about the stuff I like and I talk about the mistakes I've made. I just think it's really
2: important. Can I ask, just out of curiosity, why you choose uh, like Botox and fillers? Is that because you don't want to age or is it it like you like a certain Mm. look? You like it to look smooth? I'm just curious. There's a certain look that I like. So like you,
3: I love little cute grandmothers, but I love the way Erica Jane looks. I love the way Cher looks. I love the way Dolly Parton looks. I love the way Joan Rivers looked. Yeah. I like that look. And so I'm not really going for a decade. I'm going for like that aesthetic. Aesthetic.
2: Yeah. No, I love it. And I'm looking at you in your, uh, in your feather, (laughs) uh, feather trimmed um, pajamas, silk pajamas. And I'm like, okay. Yeah. I love it. I, I love the way you look. Um, I want to talk to you quickly before you go about just we have obviously seen this huge rise in comedians being called out, men who are in comedy being Mm. called out uh, for their creepy, uh, pervy and sometimes kind of illegal behaviour. And one of the things that I think is really weird is the fact that so many women are being asked to comment on it as if it's their responsibility. Are you finding this happen to you?
3: Yeah, I think that. It's a tricky one because my advice from a selfish perspective to maybe a novice comedian would be staying out of it and Mm. keeping your opinions to yourself benefits you. Being uh, an agreeable, quote unquote, good girl, turning the other cheek and just focusing on your work and your stand up and not being difficult. Benefits you, but it doesn't benefit anyone else. So there was certainly a time in my career early on where it's like, really, what is the use commenting on some of these inequalities? Because you just get labeled whiny or problem, and you're or a not bit influential. Much, like me. <laughs>
2: or, <laughs> or is that what they say? You're a <laughs> yeah, bit much. I'm a bit much. Yeah. <laughs>
3: but haven't you heard? Who was it? Whitney Cummings said, If you think I'm a bit much, maybe you're just not enough. Yeah, I love that line. Yeah, Or too little. Um, Yeah, so now I'm at a position where I think I have more freedom in the jobs I choose. I tour on my own, so I don't need to be welcomed onto a bill. So I do speak about the uh, discrepancies that I've seen. But it's this real catch-22 because women are already considered you know, generally we are considered across the board, less funny by both, you know, men and women and all genders we will just are happy to say women are less funny. And then it's like, well, why are you mad? Well, why are you whining about? Well, why are you so angry? And it's like when your little sister takes your arm and goes, well, stop hitting yourself, stop hitting yourself. And it's like, all we're doing, I mean, I'm not, All we're doing is observing. And if these other comedians, our counterparts, can't just observe the same things that we're seeing, you're meant to be observant. You're a comedian. It's sort of the Jerry Seinfeld, what's the deal with airplane food? All we're really saying is, hey, what's the deal with the rape culture in my industry? Mm -hmm. It's like, we're just commenting on, and I think that's okay to go, well, this is definitely different. And um, I, I shared... This um, piece, I think an American comedian was joking about a open spot woman giving him a blowjob to get stage time and how he really broke her down. It ruined her life. She left L.A. with dirty fingernails or something. And this was a joke. Everyone's commenting. Oh, he's only joking. He's a really nice guy. He's only joking. Um, but it's like those are the people... The fans of of that type of... That's always the joke. So the joke is, I exist in an industry where women are largely regarded as, like, sex holes. That's always the joke. Mm -hmm. And on bills, it'll be man, 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 man. One woman. If it's any more women than that. Until very recently, then that wasn't acceptable. Oh, it's too female heavy. So, you know, I've had a very easy time in comedy. I've been very lucky, as I say, but that's not discounting the fact that I have listened to comedian after comedian after comedian, in my experience, especially in America, degrade women. That's the joke. Mm -hmm. And then it's my turn. So there's just something about that, that you have to notice. You have to go, well, all right, but we're just noticing. And all their fans go, well, stop trying to cancel the guy that we love. It's like, well, I'm not trying to cancel anybody. I'm
2: just saying look, look at that. This is how it is. Is that okay? Is that acceptable? Why are we doing that? Is it laziness that we can't just shift and change and make people feel a bit more safe in this fucking industry? Well, I'm very glad that you have prevailed all the way to the very top um, through all of that gross culture. And I'm so grateful for you coming on today and talking to me about all these deeply personal things. And I love you so much. And before you go, will you just tell me, Catherine Ryan, what do you weigh?
3: Oh, Oh, gosh, not a lot. I <laughs> I'm very my BMI, by your standards, is low. <laughs> I weigh um a career that I really love, yeah. really love. I weigh um a daughter whom I really think is exceptional and I look up to and whose time and company I really enjoy. I weigh. Properties that I was the first woman in my family to buy property by herself, and I again I've closed on pedestal of feminism once again, but fuck those other bitches <laughs> and <laughs> um <laughs> it wasn't my grandma's fault, like my grandma wouldn't have been allowed to buy a house, so I mean I had a head start <laughs> And a way like um I think I have a nice rapport with I like my Audiences, I think they're good people. Do you know what I mean? Mm. My audiences aren't in Whitney Cummings DMs threatening her, they're just like nice. Yeah, um,
2: dogs. Can you do dogs? Yeah, you can do dogs. You can weigh anything you like, anything you feel like, anything that you weigh the sum of all your parts. Do you also weigh a 75 year old daughter emotionally? Yes. She's a little old Indian woman. That's what she is. She I is. Yeah, that's, that's who I feel like I'm with, spiritually. Yeah. Um, well, thank you. Thank you for your contribution to Women in Comedy, as you once said about, what did you say about, was it when you were like, Amy Schumer could be raping me right now? Is that what you said? Or could be fisting oh, me? Oh, I said,
3: oh, I was talking about, actually, and this was brought up again in Drew Dixon's On the Record documentary. Have you seen that? No, I haven't. It's about Russell Simmons, but um, she Uh, explained very eloquently how a lot of Black women are in this position where they've seen just the pillaging of Black men and they feel this instinct to protect them. But then when something happens to them they also, they're sort of trapped between like, well, do I stand up for myself as a woman having been assaulted or do I protect these black men and no one protects black women? So she was talking about that. That's actually what I was talking about with the Bill Cosby accusers. I talked about how they were black women. He was a really successful black man at that time who'd done so much for visibility of, you know, positive black dad on television the biggest guy on television so they were stuck and they were like oh god well I don't want to go against him but I do need to speak my own truth and then I said I understand as a female comedian what that's like because Amy Schumer um could be wearing me like a watch that's what you said and I'd have to be like thank you for everything you've done for women in our industry (laughs) so it's like a dark subject but that's what I was talking about
2: (laughs) Well, thank you for coming on this podcast today. Thank you for being such a joy and thank you for having entertained me up close and from afar for almost a decade now. Um I love you loads and it's really I nice. I love you. To see thank you for
3: face. blessing me with your chat. Um I'll speak to you soon. Lots of love. Bye. Bye bye. <laughs>
2: Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode. I Way with Jamila Jamil is produced and researched by myself, Jamila Jamil, Erin Finnegan and Kimmy Gregory. It is edited by Andrew Carson and the beautiful music you are hearing now is made by my boyfriend, James Blake. If you haven't already, please rate, review and subscribe to the show. It's a great way to show your support. we would love to pass the mic to one of our fabulous listeners. I weigh my empathy, my role as a stay-at-home parent, persistence, public service, and current effort running for state assembly.
1: Start clean with Clorox, because Clorox delivers a powerful clean every time. Because messes happen. Because...